This is Office Detox. Personal stories reflected on this podcast are true, but details have been changed to protect the companies and people involved. So, you do your undergrad on scholarship while juggling part-time jobs. You go straight to work after school with no detour to some beautiful foreign place and take an entry-level job as an analyst in a cubicle with a commute and a lease compact car. You pay off your loans, you become team lead, you get your MBA and go up to manager downtown with a view, then you become a portal manager after 15 years. Then finally, you're a director. Never slept with a boss or client. Nope, never do that, ew. Just working the skills and understanding people and how they operate. Always watching, analyzing. So maybe this isn't you, but it's me. My name is Stefania, and this is the Office Detox Podcast. I wanna tell you about this amazing learning opportunity. My voice was shaking and starting to go up in that high-pitched tone on this particular webinar on this particular day. In business, my confidence has built over the years to the point where it was almost bulletproof. But at one point it peaked and the confidence started to trend down. Part of my job is to present training opportunities, which is a key revenue driver of the company. And today I have to work extra hard to summon it. Come on, Steph. Kids, family, people relying on me. Okay, there it is. Deep breath, strong finish. There are 24 training candidates, as we called them, on the line. I take questions from them. One of them has a Southern accent. I remember a few years ago selling training to a beautiful couple with their similar regional accent to this one, then seeing him and his beautiful wife go bankrupt a few years later. They were part of so many people who we sold training to, whether they could afford it or not. But at the time of the training, their check cashed, so to speak, or their credit card didn't bounce, something like that. Our training was to help them succeed in business. And I was pretty good at selling packages. It's not our fault, it was them, said my boss Jim confidently. You see stuff, you just care too much, he said frequently during our many one-to-one coaching sessions. It's your biggest strength and your biggest weakness. I figured he was right. I needed to care less and be more businessy. Does anyone else have questions? There was a silence, but I could tell that people were enthusiastic. I had done my job. I ate breakfast and lunch at my desk. I rarely took breaks. I left in the morning, opening the office at 7 a.m. before my kids woke up and came home just one hour before they went to sleep. My boss wanted it that way and I understood. I also worked through lunch. He, on the other hand, came in late almost every day and came back from a three-week Australian outback holiday with his wife recently. I walked past my colleague's office. Colleague was a strong word for it, lots of rumors, and I personally had seen things I couldn't unsee. I tried not to judge, but it was awkward to say the least, to be stuck between their two offices like some weird sandwich. I did more work than anyone and had more responsibility, yet I never got any promotions or changes, as I said. If anything, things got harder as time went on. If anything, I could feel my life getting smaller and smaller. As I got more on my desk, I thought it would lead to somewhere. It would lead to greater leadership or responsibility. It would lead to some kind of development, 
But in reality, I was just being fooled into doing jobs that I wasn't getting paid for. I was just a working rube being duped. But I didn't know that yet. A school of life thing no MBA could teach. Office Detox is a show about business. Just like any great story, business is a battleground. The quote from Edmund Burke is very relevant here. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. If we, who are basically trying to make a living and do more good than harm, are too passive, then the rest, the predators, the narcissists and more, are going to take over the place. All of the things that we love about business will vanish, leaving the thieves and the con men in charge. It may be too late already, but I'm going to be a optimist and I'm going to try. And there is so much to love. In business, you can create your own life. You are not in the safety of a lab or an educational institution. You're out in the real world creating things that other people need, ruled by the invisible hand. Throughout the series, we were taking a look at different factors, some of which were part of commerce and trade since it started, and others that have joined us more recently. These are the things that are creating a toxic environment in business. And these are the things that, in my humble opinion, we could change. Welcome to Office Detox. I'm your host, Stefania Sigurdsson-Forbes. If I didn't love business, I would not be doing this. But there's a big gap between where business is and where it could be. So my friends, let's get started and say, hey, business, we can do better. Today's episode is about predators. Jim, the boss I talked about at the beginning, is a predator. But there are also predatory organizations making everyone within it acting in a way based on some unwritten behavioral rules. At that time, I thought Jim was great. He built a multi-million dollar business and not many people have done that in their lives. He was charming, fun, and told great stories. He had a magnetic personality and can convince people of things very easily. He didn't seem bothered about people complaining or getting upset. He always had an even keel when it came to that. He stayed out of the fray. When things were blowing up with trainees, he would be completely out of the picture. He cared about his family. His son drove a Mercedes to his first year of college that matched his very own. Before I get what is next, I want to just do a quick reminder that I'm not a licensed psychologist, but I have done a lot of research on this, which will be referenced in the show notes. One thing is that predators can be very charming at first. They draw you in. If you're someone who relies on vibes when it comes to people, a predator can really overcome it. They have learned a way to appear like a nice person, which helps them a lot, out a lot. Apparently, brain scans of sociopaths, when they're encountered with emotional stimuli, you see brain activity in the analytical side of their brain, where the rest of us are just reacting in an emotional manner. So we're being emotional and they're being analytical. According to the book, The Sociopath Next Door, Martha Stout says that one in 25 people are sociopaths. A sociopath is considered someone who has no conscience. What does having no conscience mean? It means that one can do what they want and they can sleep at night. It means that any backstabbing or creating pain in the life of others has no effect on them. Being a sociopath can be an advantage in life and business. In fact, being able to stay cool under pressure and make difficult decisions is a plus. They say 10% of senior executives are sociopath. 
In some ways, that makes sense. If someone has to make tough decisions regarding layoffs or, you know, a giant change to suppliers for the business, a cool head is needed. But this is more than a cool head. Interestingly, while only 4% are actual sociopaths, 20% of the prison population are. So not everyone in prison is a sociopath, and not everyone who behaves inappropriately at work is either. Psychologists say that other reasons include social oppression, mental illness, addiction, etc. in terms of the prison population. In terms of business, we're going to get to that in future episodes. Part of being a sociopath is playing power games with people. Sociopaths are easily bored, and they do this to relieve that boredom. In my case, I knew that these people, who we were trying to sell training to, could neither afford the very expensive training they had just bought, and the vast majority would not execute on it properly. Part of me agreed with Jim. Well, that was not my responsibility. Buyer beware, right? But I was helping people believe it was possible, when it most definitely wasn't. Seeing so many fail made me literally sick to my stomach. It was successful for a small minority, but not for so many others before them. So as I recount these stories, it is not with a harsh eye. I was part of a predatory company. To the boss, the trainees were nothing but targets. The organization fitted like a glove around that attitude. And instead of a good business that provided a valuable exchange to the other party, it was just to gain opportunity for one person, for that matching Mercedes-Benz for him and his son. The price? A wake of destruction behind him. Now I'm going to talk about Wells Fargo and Carrie Tolstead, how she went from a most successful woman to a predator. Carrie grew up in Kimball, a town of 2,500 on the high plains of southwest Nebraska. Her parents, Arnie and Wanda Christensen, owned the town bakery. Carrie got the banking bug when she was a child. She liked to roll up coins, count up the bills, add up the checks, and carry the deposit to the bank across the street. They knew my dad by name. They treated them with respect, she said. Her family business ingrained the attitude of service and customer first. With a bakery in a small town, you are serving your friends and neighbors every day, she said. So you never, ever want to let your customer down. She understood the juggling act involved in running a small business, how you have to juggle finance, marketing, and everything else at once. Her small town roots worked well for Wells, who liked to think of themselves as more Main Street than Wall Street. I remember visiting Wells Fargo as a kid with my aunt and uncle in California. They were in the Bay Area. The logo wasn't an abstract shape or someone's initials. It was a horse and carriage. It evoked a Western, historical, down-to-earth image. So I can see how Carrie's personal brand as a successful daughter of a banker helped contribute to the brand of the organization. After graduating from the University of Nebraska, Carrie went to work for the small banks. She was with Northwest Corp when Wells Fargo acquired the Minneapolis-based bank operation in 1998. Ten years later, when Wells rescued troubled Wachovia Bank in North Carolina, Carrie built her storied career. In 2015, Carrie was named one of Fortune's most powerful women. She was number 27. On the Fortune website, it says she was the woman behind 
every interaction that Wells Fargo's 22 million retail households have with the bank. She leads 102,000 team members and oversees about 6,200 retail locations. Her boss, John Strump, called her the best banker in America. He called her principled and a dear friend. Wow, that is an amazing career and good for Carrie. So she must feel really amazing about herself and her parents must be proud of her. So John said, when you mix intellect and attention to detail with a wonderful human, a person who can empathize and deal with a team, that's where the magic happened. He was talking about Carrie. How good does that feel? So question, why am I talking about this lovely woman on an episode about predators? She sure doesn't sound like one, right? But that's the thing about predators. They can unhinge your perceptions and they can make it so we cannot see who they are. Wells paid her 9.5 million in 2015, citing her strong cross-selling ratios and her work reinforcing a strong risk culture. According to regulatory documents, but less than two years later, she was in so deep as an organizational predator that she was asked to give $47 million back in a single day. This brought the total amount of money that she had given up to $67 million, or about 54% of her $125 million pay package she initially received when she retired. So in one day, she was asked to give back what 831 medium American households earn in a year. I wonder what that feels like. The allegations? She was in charge of a division that gave 2 million mostly unauthorized accounts for their customers. There's one teenage daughter of a manager who had over 10 accounts, for example. So let's get into this. Going for great, so that's GR with a line and then the number eight was a slogan that she used. It meant that getting the customer to buy eight products for the bank was the goal. The reason for eight, it rhymes with great. The average at other banks is three. So like checking, savings, and maybe a second savings that you try not to touch, for example. It sounds cute, but it wasn't. It was incredibly stressful for those on the ground. One person said, We had a lot of longtime customers and good staff, but the sales pressure kept mounting and mounting and mounting. To break it down, Wells Fargo's own analysis found that between 2011 and 2015, its employees had opened more than 1.5 million deposit accounts and more than 565,000 credit cards that may not have been authorized. So that means people didn't even take an action to try to open these the people at the bank were just doing it without their permission. Some customers were charged fees on accounts they didn't even know they had. And some customers had collection agencies calling them due to unpaid fees on accounts they didn't know existed. Gaming was so widespread that it had even spawned related terms, such as pinning, which meant assigning customers personal identification numbers or pins without their knowledge in order to impersonate them on Wells Fargo's computer and enroll them in various products without their knowledge. The fraud was not only big, but blatant. There were even 193,000 non-employee accounts opened between 2011 and 2015, for which the only email domain name listed was at wellsfargo.com. Pretty obvious, right, that these aren't real accounts. So what's going on? The sales culture at Wells was quite simply crazy. 
Take Shelley Freeman, for example, the regional president for Los Angeles until 2009. She was known for her aggressive tactics. Quote, Freeman was particularly aggressive in her jump into January campaigns. Witnesses described the practice of running the gauntlet, in which district managers dressed up in themed costumes, formed a gauntlet, and had each manager run down the line to a whiteboard and then the number of sales that they achieved. Witnesses also stated that Freeman suggested to subordinates that they encourage customers to sign up for products regardless of need. Hold on. A gauntlet. I've been around salespeople for 20 years, and I've never seen anything like that. How do those salespeople feel when they get home? How do they explain it to their kids or their friends or their parents? Bankers who spoke Chinese and Spanish noticed that people who are not fluent in English had more accounts than they needed, and they didn't even understand it. Elderly people as well were targeted. One employee helped a homeless woman close extra accounts someone else had created. Consider the experience of Becky Grimes. Becky Grimes had trouble enough hitting sales target as a manager at a busy bank in Wells Fargo in Austin, Texas. But when she moved to run a Wells branch in a much smaller farming town about two hours to the south in 2011, the same targets, 8.5 products per day per banker, became too much to bear. Ms. Grimes had four conference calls every day at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., 2 p.m., and 5 p.m. During those calls, she was grilled by a district manager on the sales that her team had generated. Staff would come to her in the interim, saying that they had done a full profiling exercise on a particular customer, but she would have them turn back to sell more. It was pretty ridiculous, she says. It bordered on harassment, quite honestly. So to the predators, the employees don't matter, clearly, and the customers matter least of all. Consider Yesenia Guitron. Yesenia said she saw strange things happening to customer accounts after she began working in the Wells Fargo branch in St. Helena, California in 2008. People ended up with 10 to 15 debit cards that they didn't request. When her complaints to the branch manager were ignored, she went to HR and to the bank's ethics department. So after that happened, she kept emailing them back. What's happening? What did you find? What are we going to do together? She thought of them as authorities and that they were in this fight together. Eventually, as her complaints continued, she says the manager of her branch came to her desk and told her she was fired, then escorted her at the door. There are additional allegations that the helpline, if called, got people fired. I can't imagine a more alone feeling than this. Not only are you trying to do the right thing for your customers and being a good person, and maybe even a good role model for your kids and your family, but you're also awkwardly facing the public while waiting for corporate to react, knowing what is happening, but unable to help. As I read upon Yesenia, she was one of those really thorough people who could see everything, a super efficient person who is right in the details, someone you'd want to have as your banker. It just sucks that this was hurting her career and not helping. At first, Wells blamed the employees, saying it came down to a small amount of people gaming the system. But I see it as people who are just trying to keep their jobs and are struggling with unrealistic sales targets. The ones who were meeting the targets were promoted up the chain. And that was many times through gaming the system. 
In this case, it creates a culture. There's an unwritten rule that it is okay. The fact that HR did not act, I don't really blame them either, entirely. They all rolled up to Carrie. Carrie's boss, the CEO, stuck his head in the sand, saying she could run it like she owned it, a claim that Senator Elizabeth Warren later called gutless. According to the board, Carrie was obsessed with control, especially of negative information around the community bank, and extremely reluctant to make changes. She fostered an insular culture at the top of the community bank and had an inner circle of staff that supported her, reinforced her views, and protected her. When a negative article in the LA Times came out, John Stumpf said, I have worked over the weekend with Carrie on the LA issue. I really feel Carrie and her team are fine. We do such a good job in this area. I will fight this one to the finish. Do you know only around 1% of our people lose their jobs for gaming the system? They did do some things wrong. You bet. This is called life. This is not systematic. So there he is scapegoating the employees to protect the people he likes. The fact that this is happening across the board points to it not being a couple of bad apples. This is known as a fact in the world of auditing. If it is happening in one place, that is one problem with one store. If it is happening all over the place, it is systematic. Ultimately, Carrie and her inner circle were acting like predators, while the either clueless or gutless CEO looked the other way. According to the book Dangerous Personalities by former FBI profiler Joe Navarro, predators have only one goal, and that is exploitation. Most of us build our lives around relationships and achievements Predators focus on opportunities to use people, places, and situations for their own gain. This default setting governs much of their behavior. These individuals don't think as we do. We care about others. They pretend to care, but simply don't. We see each other as equals. They see us either as opportunities or obstacles in fulfilling their needs. For them, life has no stop signs. Rules, regulations, restrictions, locks, or fences are mere inconveniences to work around. And because you and I play by the rules, they view us as saps, losers, or objects of contempt, worthy of devaluation, derision, and even abuse. It is hard to believe at times that there are people who really don't give a shit about others. Excuse my language. But they do walk among us. And in many ways, this behavior is encouraged. They are exquisitely skilled at detecting weaknesses. They target the vulnerable, the injured, the struggling, the gullible, the susceptible, the young, or the ones who can't fight back, including new immigrants. From how someone moves or even looks, the predator knows who to target. When you think of predators, picture a hurricane or a tornado, a massive force that can leave a giant debris of human suffering behind. So I had this memory. I had this memory when I was at a very low point in my life. I was seven months pregnant with my son, and my husband confessed to me that he had lost his job on a sad car ride. I was definitely showing, and the baby nursery was assembled. The pregnancy was not easy, but I digress. My beautiful and brilliant blue-eyed boy was the best prize I could ever hope for, so everything was worth it. But at the time, we were in a really tight spot financially. We were worried about hitting our mortgage, and my good consulting income was drying up as quickly as my belly was swelling. So we tried the Hail Mary, and it didn't work. I had one more chance. 
So I went to Jim, the predator that I mentioned earlier, selling training programs. I was doing a small amount of consulting with him. I said, I was wondering if I could have a full-time job. My heart was in my throat. My food on my plate uneaten. Silence, silence. And then he said, yes. Then, do you know what he did? He laughed. It was the longest laugh I had ever heard. Super socially unacceptable, thinking back. It just went on and on. And it was likely because he had just seen someone sitting there who was so vulnerable and easy to control. I was so worried at the time about what he thought about me and how he was judging me. I didn't think about the laugh that much, but I sure do today. Predators have no empathy, no remorse, and no conscience. Many predators are sociopaths. No wonder there's a higher amount of sociopaths in business. The emotionless, cool-headed that it takes to lead. You never lose your head. You stay calm under pressure. They have that. As salespeople, it takes pushing for what you want no matter what. And for them, it doesn't matter how it affects the other person. You can see that I'm looking at sociopaths and predators going back and forth. It's not a perfect overlap, but they have a lot in common. I like Navera's work because he is not trying to be a psychologist. He is just a practical FBI person who has seen a lot of people and can spot them at this point. He is not looking for why. He's just trying to avoid what's destructive. He's trying to get by and have crime happen less. And this is similar to what I'm wanting. I want the work environment to be better. If there is just one person out there hearing this story and feeling like they're in a predatory environment and feel understood right now, I'm happy to have helped. Now, the thing about this whole situation is that I love business. I'm not anti-capitalist at all looking for a centrally planned world order. No way. I'm in marketing for 20 years now. I work with salespeople all the time and I sell too. We are not all predators. There's a big difference here. It's the difference between caring about your effect on others and not. As a manager, I was part of a predatory organization that went from the very top. I was one of the prey, as were my coworkers. In fact, the majority of my coworkers were new immigrants or in deep debt to the employer. In my humble opinion, being indebted to your employer should be illegal. And actually being indebted to the employer in some parts of history was how slavery worked. There was always a hold on all the people that worked for the organization. And I'm sure he still has that hold today. Mine was that I was pregnant and realistically, who would hire me? Me and all my other coworkers, we couldn't leave. So I think about the people at Wells Fargo saying, aid is great. I mean, Carrie was a hardworking person, but wasn't it time to stop drinking the Kool-Aid for a while, take a walk outside in the fresh air, to think about her baker dad? For Shelly, when she was having her costume staff running the gauntlet, did she ask herself what the hell was going on? For the managers calling four times a day to grill people, what was that like? Ultimately, though, for Shelly and the managers and the HR people, I sympathize with them all. If you don't, imagine the feeling of no longer being able to support your family. Imagine you were born with a different skin color in a different neighborhood, even if you have the capabilities that you currently have. We like to think of ourselves as self-made, but if the cards of the deck were shuffled and you had different parents, 
how would you be? What if your parents were sick or addicted? So while I found it wrong, I understood that these individuals fear their jobs, fear losing housing. Management was aware that once they left, there would be a lineup behind them for a good job at a bank that was a household name. Okay, okay, they're not completely off the hook, but it's still wrong. Maybe some of them were predators and liked doing four calls a day, but I'm sure there were others that hated it. Later, there's going to be a full episode on HR. One of the reforms that Wells Fargo put in place was that they recognized the compliance and HR did nothing because it all rolled up to the boss, Carrie, and her boss, John, put his head in the sand. But when you work for a small company, there's no way to separate these things. While it would be great if HR would actually act, there's no guarantee. Plus, a lot of workplaces don't even have HR. More on this later. So back to predators. Think about them. Feeling guilt requires accepting responsibility for one's action, but predators live to take advantage, not responsibility, preferring to blame their upbringing, bad bosses, bad luck, or anything else, including the victim. And actually, many times, predators can use being victims themselves, quote unquote, as a way to fool us. While these personalities like to control others, they themselves have no moral or ethical controls and can be impulsive, adventure-seeking, and risk-taking. Think of me getting to the office at 7 a.m. while my boss was on European vacation. What to expect from them? Expect predators to turn your life upside down and derail your dreams and aspirations as they come first and they don't like people to get in their way. You may initially find them intelligent, charming, and interesting, but when you discover what they have done or when they turn on you, which can happen at any moment, the shock and pain is indescribable. They'll exhaust you because you must always be on your guard, hiding what you treasure, trying not to antagonize, or struggling to survive. They can torment you and easily wear you down. They leave a large debris of human suffering behind them. I get that. I had my confidence ground down. I stayed at the job well beyond the crisis with the pregnancy and being broke. In Carrie's case, what was the debris? Well, there were 5,300 people who lost their jobs. Have you ever lost your job? I've been laid off and it sucks. Even if your job is difficult to bear with crazy sales targets, you still have one. And a bank job is a decent one, something your mom is proud of. It must really suck to go home and explain what happened to your parents or tell your good friends over beer and many people in this type of situation blame themselves. During the period of the fraud, some Wells Fargo branch-level bankers encountered difficulty gaining employment at other banks. Banks issue something called U5 documents to departing employees, a record of misbehavior or unethical conduct. Wells Fargo issued these U5 documents to bankers who reported branch-level fraud indicating that they had been complicit in the creation of unwanted accounts. There is no regulatory process to appeal these terrible U5 forms other than file a lawsuit against the issuing corporation. So you're out of a job and you have documents saying that you are not great. Ouch. Wells Fargo employees describe the intense pressure and expectation of sales as high as 20 products a day. Others describe frequent crying, levels of stress that led to vomiting, and severe panic attacks. As mentioned, some indicated that calls to the company's ethics hotline were met with either no reaction 
or resulted in termination of the employee making the call. So the employees bore the brunt of the pain. People didn't want to bank with these guys anymore. There was a departure of major clients, such as the state of California, because blatant disregard for people that live there. The city of Chicago and others have even either replaced or sought to replace them, such as Philadelphia, Illinois, and Seattle. The Navajo Nation sued Wells Fargo in 2017. The lawsuit claimed Wells Fargo employees told elderly members of the Navajo Nation who did not speak English that checks could only be cashed if they had Wells Fargo savings accounts. Wells Fargo was the only bank that operated on a national scale with operations on the Navajo Nation. As for the bank, they had to pay $105 million and are reimbursing $5 million to the victims. Now, $185 million sounds like a big number to me, but for a bank of this size, it actually isn't. One longtime investor into the bank said that people want to trust their banks, and Wells has brought mistrust to the table. So, back to Carrie. She is widely viewed as building the community bank and making it a business success. And it was, says one person who is familiar with Wells Fargo, but by all accounts, she was mercurial, very wary of others, and apparently not the type that wanted bad news to surface. She viewed the sales model as key to the community bank's success and didn't want to take any steps to impede its operations, noted a board report, which also alleged she was obsessed with control. For instance, when Tolstead found out that Lisa Stevens had been complaining, she told Stevens to toe the line. Stumpf simply put his head in the sands. Insiders say that he did not understand the intricacy of the bank, but that sounds like a lame excuse to me. There must be no greater testament to the love of delusion inside of Wells Fargo than the fact that the executives were completely shocked by the outpouring of rage. Finally, Wells announced that it would do what it had long been unwilling to do, eliminate all product sales goals in retail banking. On October 12th, as the outcry intensified, Strumpf announced that he'd step down as CEO and forfeit $41 million. And we already talked about the millions that were clawed back from Kerry. Already Sloan, the new CEO, has made changes. As a result of the conflict of interest I mentioned earlier, functions such as human resources are being centralized at headquarters, so information can be dissected in multiple ways. Cross-selling, it seems, has become a dirty phrase. Wells now talks about mutual value exchange, which seems to boil down to providing products that customers actually want and use, like your three accounts that you have at your bank. Wall Street isn't sure what to think. The stock has regained the $30 billion that it lost, which might be a sign more of the deregulation under the Trump administration than anything else. Since then, it has been discovered that Wells Fargo is a place for people to get screwed. They charged hundreds of thousands of customers for auto insurance that they didn't want or need, leading to people having their cars repossessed, for example. They overcharged clients in foreign exchange business. They paid $50 million to settle a lawsuit, accusing it of overcharging hundreds and thousands of homeowners for appraisals that they didn't need. They paid $108 million to settle claims that it charged military vets hidden fees to refinance their mortgages. And there was the computer glitch that caused 545 people to lose their homes. In cutting costs, due in part to the high litigation costs due to all of the above, the bank is closing 800 branches by 2020. 
so more people losing their jobs. After predators are done with you. Once they are done with you, not only will you feel violated and betrayed, but thanks to their profound treachery, you'll be reluctant to trust others. Knowing that you have been used is scarring, and it is easy to stay untrusting in a coiled up position for a while. So that, my friends, is the horrible story of Carrie Tolstead and Wells Fargo, a rare one since it's also out in the open. I really think that we can do better than this, right? We can do better than this in business in general, and not just for bankers, but for people working in hospitals, in office complexes, by the airport or downtown, people in service jobs. I really think we can do better. In fact, we need to do better. There's a list that Navarro has made in his book on predators and how to spot one. What I love about it is that it's practical at heart. Again, he's not trying to be a psychologist. It's just a practical guide on staying safe. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. So if you are in a predatory organization, what can you do? Well, the best thing you can do is try to get out. It is their little world after all, one that they constructed, and they're going to continue doing what they do until someone else stops them. The second thing that you can do is start to write down your situation whether it is in your paper journal at the end of the day, or if you want to open up Evernote or Google Doc, something that's password protected. Write down names, dates, and specifics of your situation. So if the situation does go to court later, you'll likely have the upper hand. Thank you so much, my friends, for listening to my first episode of my podcast. If you would like to support this body of work, you can subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash office detox. For just $2 an episode or $5 an episode, you can get bonus content and you can make sure that this work keeps on going. So there's an episode done. Thanks for listening and see you next time.